Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of James. As I, well, I would say, Lord willing, this will be our final message in James. Lord willing. Last, I thought it would be last week that would might be our final message, but this is our final message. So I'll turn our passage to James chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 20. We'll look at verses 19 to 20 particularly, but uh, we'll read all of James 13 through 20 to give us the full context of our passage. James writes in these verses, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner From the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, as we come before your word, we ask that you teach us. Cause us, Lord, to examine our lives in light of your scriptures, that we would walk in holiness and not in sin. Father, work out the faith that that you have given us in our lives, that it would produce the good deeds and the good works that you desire of us, so that Christ would be magnified in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in James chapter 3, verse 2, as we looked at this, uh, as we studied in in the book of James, we read this phrase, or we studied this phrase, that James writes, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This is a good humbling reminder to all of us that there's not a single one of us that is without sin. Even he's writing, James is writing to believers in Christ. And he's writing them and reminding them that we all stumble. As Christians, it doesn't make us perfect. We're not perfect people. Uh, We're not without sin. We're covered. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. He treats us as if we have no sin, but yet... We do not live under an illusion that we don't sin at all, right? We all experience sin in our lives, even as Christians. And I think for us, particularly when we're younger believers, it's a great disappointment. You know, you come to Christ, you think, oh, I've been forgiven in Christ and I've forgiven my sins. And then, yet still, I find myself falling into temptation at times, struggling with sin and giving into temptation, giving into all sorts of temptation. And that's a disappointment when we, all, we have this now a desire in our hearts to walk in holiness, to live in a way that pleases God, to live in a way that pleases Christ. But we are just simply reminded in verses like James 3, 2 and other places in Scripture that we have a sin nature, don't we? We, have, we are all uh, in Adam, born with a nature that, is, that is tended, has a tendency to always pursue after sin. Before Christ, particularly, we were helpless against sin. 
We could do nothing against it. We, we didn't even know about our sin. We just lived our lives indulging in our sins. But Christ died on the cross so that we would know forgiveness of sins. Not just forgiveness of sins, but also that we would know freedom from sin. And it is as new believers in Christ that though we at times wrestle with sin and give in to sin, you probably feel it. And that disappointment that you feel is, reveals the realization that you are wrestling with sin, that we wrestle with it. We, we fight against it. We, we try to resist temptations when it comes. And there are times when we do that, and maybe, I hope more oftentimes than not. The fact that we wrestle with sin is a sign that we have Christ in us. The difference with Christ now is that we actually are empowered to be aware of sin, to be sensitive to sin, because we have the Spirit of God in us. And so we wrestle. Every believer has experienced this disappointment. Every believer, though, also has discovered the joy and grace of forgiveness in Christ when we confess our sins. Even as I was thinking about singing that last song, it made me reflect upon the great joy that I feel knowing that there are, there are times where I still uh, may be a poor example of Christ. I may not love my wife as I ought. I may not drive in a way that you know, pleases the Lord. I may not think the way I ought to. I may be lazy at times. But still, all those sins that I commit as a believer in Christ that bring shame to Christ that I'm ashamed to even talk about, are all forgiven in Christ. Praise God for grace that is greater than all our sins. All of it. It's a wonderful joy. It's very comforting to know that we have this grace that is in Christ. And as terrible as it is, can you imagine when, you, when we feel the sin in our own lives is when we, as a church body, observe sin in the life of our fellow believers, sin that it goes on unresolved, unrepentant. It, it may be just one individual, maybe a group of individuals. And though I hope that you may never experience it, but probably if you live long enough, you will experience it, where sin will affect the life of this church. And I guarantee when that time comes, you will feel a, a similar disappointment a similar discouragement and pain because you see sin going on in the life of your church, this church. And I trust that it will not be, we will not respond with a judgmental attitude, or, um, but that it will, will, ha- will be grieved because we love Christ's church. We love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we want to see them walk in holiness just as we desire to walk in holiness before the Lord knowing that grace does cover all our sins. But the question still is, what do you do when others sin? What do we do? How do you handle that? Because it happens. Now, we pray most times that people would kind of repent of their sins. Uh, God would bring that just through the the regular time in the Word. But sometimes it doesn't. People continue in sin. And when that happens, well, there's various responses. Some of us respond by simply ignoring it, right? Right? Well, just, if I just ignore it, maybe it'll just go away. You know, just kind of sweep it under the rug. Hopefully no one will notice that little lump there. 
Others of us who are more bold will directly confront that sin. We'll go right up to the person. We'll point out their sin. And a few of us with just maybe perhaps unrealistic expectations or maybe just because we're young in the faith, we simply get discouraged by that continued sin. And then we fall away. We leave the church because we just say, well, it's full of hypocrites. What do we do when others sin in the body of Christ? That's what James has been teaching us in this passage, James 5, 13 to 20. We began to look at what James has to say to believers who are facing unresolved sin in not only their own lives, but the life of the church. He ends his letter with an encouragement to us believers in Christ to not allow sin to go unresolved within the church, but instead to prayerfully seek restoration. That's what faith in Christ does. Faith in Christ doesn't give up on fellow believers in Christ. Well, they're sinning. Oh, forget it. They're hopeless case. I'm hopeless case. No. Faith prayerfully seeks the restoration of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we got to do. Prayerfully do so. Prayer, in fact, the passage emphasizes prayer first. That's kind of a priority in this passage. We see prayer all over this passage. So as an outline, we looked at last week, uh, just began to look at, when facing sins in the church, five motivations that encourage believers in Christ to pray. Uh, particularly to pray for their sancti- the sanctification, restoration, repentance, etc. So we looked at four of them last week. I want to quickly review those four for those of you that were not here with us last week. So we'll do a quick review. First of all, the first motivation that we saw is that prayer is for all of life. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. We learned that whether suffering or cheerful, the believer in Christ is to pray to God. The implication, of course, is that we are to be praying whether we are in one extreme or in between. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, And everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in everything, we're to be praying to God about. In fact, prayer is to be a way of life for us as believers in Christ. We are to be praying in every circumstance, including those times when a fellow believer is walking in sin. James uh, then moves on and lists a third circumstance where prayer is needed. And he wrote in verse 14 to 15, which provided a second uh, motivation for us to pray. And that is that prayer heals the sick. We, learned, we read, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, we spent quite a bit of time last week because I thought it was important uh, for, to ex- examine and understand that James here is talking about, when he talks about those who are sick, he's speaking to those who have a debilitating disease or sickness or illness that is a consequence of unresolved sin. Uh, and, while we, and then we went through a, a sort of a biblical theology of healing in, in the Bible. We acknowledge that while not all sickness is the direct result of sin, it's not always, it, all, all sickness is, it, in its absolute sense, is because of sin, the sin in the world. But not every sin that we experience, not every disease or illness that we experience is a direct result of it. Yet, the scriptures do teach that our Heavenly Father, like our earthly fathers, disciplines us when we sin, when we fall away from the Lord. He disciplines us with various things, with trials, etc. But sometimes He'll afflict us with disease or illness or sickness, even death, as we saw, either to teach to bring fear of God to the whole congregation or to bring the individual to repentance. 
So when a believer is sick, as we saw here, uh, because of, and because of sin, then he or she is to call for the elders of the church to come pray for him or her to anoint them with oil. And that prayer of faith, along with the confession of sin, leads then to a healing as well as restoration. Now, we're reminded then that of the gravity of this situation, that the gravity of this whole uh, circumstance where someone is, is deathly sick because of their own sin serves as a motivation for us to not allow sin to go on unresolved either in our lives or in the life of believers. Do we really want to see fellow believers be disciplined by the Lord? Uh, well, I know it's maybe as, you know, when you're a young child, you enjoyed seeing your brother or sister get in trouble from your parents. But that was sinful. That was sinful. That was wrong. Uh, in fact, we should be our brother's keeper. We should look out for one another. We shouldn't say, well, if, God don't, if I let Brother Chris here just keep on going on in sin, God may strike him down with some disease. I don't want that to happen. I love this brother, right? I don't want to see him get struck. Well, I hope not. <laughs> so there's a, that's our motivation to pray. Pray for people who are, in, who are maybe in unre, unrepentant sin because we don't want to see God's hand of discipline because God will bring discipline upon them. Um, let's intervene before that gets that serious. We found a third motivation, that prayer is commanded of all believers. Prayer for those who are in sin isn't just the task of elders, uh, but it's also for everyone. Uh, therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Paul instructs the whole church to regularly confess your sins to one another. Uh, when we sin against a brother or sister in Christ, we should confess our sins to one another. We should ask for forgiveness. And then along with our confession of sins to one another, James instructs us to pray, to pray for one another, to pray for forgiveness, to pray for unity, to pray for that we wouldn't hold a grudge or be continue to be offended by one another. For when offended offender come together in prayer for one another, it brings them closer to Christ. And when it brings us closer to Christ, it reminds us, that we really have no reason to boast, no reason to, to hold a grudge against someone else because God doesn't do that to us. He doesn't hold a grudge against, oh, Henry, how could you sin against me like that? Oh, I'm so angry at you. He forgives. We ought to forgive. As we regularly practice confessing our sins and praying for one another, it should reveal in our hearts a, a spirit of forgiveness. Recall how Jesus taught us even to pray that to, when we pray to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That our awareness of our own forgiveness of sins in Christ should make, it readily, make us readily forgive others who may offend and sin against us. We shouldn't hold it against people because we too. Imagine if God held sin against us. James ends verse 16 with a saying that leads us to our fourth motivation. And that is, prayer is effective and powerful. We read about Elijah, and Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And hopefully, some of you, did anybody do that? Go read 1 Kings 17, 18 this past week? Okay. No, we confessing? Okay. Well, you should have. If you never didn't know the story, you didn't read it. It's like, oh, that's a very fascinating story. Still, best, uh, best thing you'll read this week if, you have, if, you never read, if you've never read... 1 Kings 17 18. You've never heard the story. It's one of the neatest, uh, most exciting. I think it's a great story about the triumph of God uh, over uh, the enemies of Israel, bringing the Israelites to repentance. Anyways, you probably read there, you're familiar with the story, how God used Elijah to restore Israel to God. 
They had fallen into the worship of Baal. They'd followed after their king Ahab. And at the beginning and end of Israel's restoration were the prayers of, his, prayers of Elijah. He prayed and there was a drought as a judgment, God's judgment upon Israel. It lasted for three and a half years. And not until the prophets of Baal were destroyed did it then pour rain upon the earth again. But yet that prayer was effective not because Elijah was this, had any special powers in and of himself. The scriptures tell us that he was a man with a nature like ours. He was a regular person. A regular Joe. God used and answered the prayers of, of Elijah to bring a whole nation to repentance. In the same way, God wants to use and answer our prayers to bring fellow believers caught up in sin to return to him. Elijah is an example as well as motivation for us to pray for the repentance and of wayward, saint, of wayward saints. And uh, for, as James writes, the prayer of a righteous man or woman can accomplish much. Our prayers can accomplish much. God is glorified when we pray to him and people come to repentance. So with this then, this is our brief summary. And we come today to the last two verses of James. Uh, Many commentators have taken these last two verses to basically stand on their own as the conclusion to the letter of James. It's... Honestly, it's, when you read it, it's, it's, very, it's an abrupt ending. When you think of letters, you would think, well, you know, we often see Paul's letters. He'll say, uh, send my greetings to so-and-so. All my, the saints here in Jerusalem or the saints here would also send my greetings. But James doesn't end like that at all, though it is a letter. But yet it's, it's quite abrupt. It just comes. For this reason, many people feel that James may not be just letter per se, but a, a sermon in letter form. That it's kind of a sermon that kind of ends in this way. So it ends in a very powerful conclusion. Throughout the whole letter, James has been challenging his readers to look out for sin in their own lives. You claim to have faith in Christ? Well, faith in Christ ought to work. Is your faith like this? Is your faith like this? Is your faith like this? And they were examining their own lives, how they ought to change, how they ought to align to God's word. But here in the end, he says, he challenged them to look, not just look out for sin in their own lives, but now to look out for sin in the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters. In light of our study of verse 13 18, verse 19 20 is really is, is in the context of seeking the restoration of a sinning believer. It's, all, it's closely connected, and that's why I wanted to keep it connected with verse 13 to 18, because they all are talking about the same thing. They talk about sin in the life of the church and how we ought to respond to it. So here in verse 19 to 20, we find then our fifth and final motivation to pray for the healing and restoration of wayward saints. That prayer saves sinners. When we realize that prayer, when we pray for one another, it saves sinners. When we bring people to turn, from, turn away from sin, it saves them from sin. And we'll look at what, that, what this means in this text. We read the verse of all, verse 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We notice here first the responsibility. James, uh, that the responsibility that we have uh, as believers in Christ to turn people away from sin. James, if you notice, for the very last time, 
here in verse 19, addresses his, bro- his readers as brethren. He calls them my brethren. We've seen, we've seen this term all throughout this book, right? Brethren, brethren. Kind of just highlight every time you see the word brethren. It, it, uh, it, rec- it is a term that recognizes that as believers in Christ, we are a family. We are a family. James considers these, these readers, though he may not have ever met them, they're living all outside of Jerusalem, spread throughout uh, the, the Mediterranean region, all fellow Jewish believers, and he calls them brethren. He recognizes they, they are family because we, all of us in Christ are sons and daughters of God. All of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not just you know, a, a euphemism. It's not just, just to make it sound nice. But in God's eyes, it is real. It is true. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have earthly families. You all feel the closeness, and I trust you all feel the closeness to your earthly families. You love them. You look out for them. You, even you, you put up with them sometimes. This family that we have on earth ends with our death. But the family of God exists for eternity. Our brothers and sisters in Christ will be there with us a hundred years, a thousand years, 10,000 years from now. But our earthly family, as close as we are to them, as much as we love them and ought to love them, they're here just for these short 70, 80 years of our lives. And so it tells us how we it's reflect, it should reveal to us how we ought to be, interact with one another as brothers and sisters, that we should treat one another as family, looking out for one another. You look out for one another, don't you? As you look out for your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad, your, your children. We all do that. But we also learn from this term brother, we're reminded of Jesus' words about brothers. In Luke 8, 21, he said, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so James, when he uses this term throughout this book, he's reminding, he, he uses so many commands for us that he wants us to know that here's a command, and it's not just, you know, nice if you do it, but if you're, if you're a brother or sister in the Lord, then this is what you ought to do. This is what you, as, as followers of Christ, would desire to keep. You'll want to do it. But we have, and one of those responsibilities that Jesus taught his disciples to keep was found in Luke 17, verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. See, we have a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we see someone else in sin, to rebuke them. Now, sometimes that rebuke has a strong connotation so someone like, you're a sinner. Or, but that rebuke is a correction. And if you ever want to correct someone, hopefully you always do it, as we'll see, gently, with love and compassion, with humility. We have a responsibility to call our fellow brothers and sisters and out of love to turn away from sin. And that's the situation we find here in verse 19. James speaks of a situation involving any among you. So he's telling them, brethren, if any among you. So he's saying if there's a fellow believer in Christ, 
He'd use this term among you back in verse 13 to 14. He says, if there's any one of you that is strayed from the truth, this term strayed from the truth reminds us of uh, stargazers. Ancient stargazers would look up into the sky and they would see all the stars in, in the space. And they would observe that basically the stars would, are, were fixed in the skies. You know, there was a, a general rotation in the stars, but generally from night to night, a star would remain fixed in the sky. But they noticed that there were some stars. They were not fixed. They would actually move in relation to the other stars across the sky. They call these wandering stars, wanderers for short. And from this word wanderers, we, they, have, they receive our English word planets, planets. We find the verbal form of planets here. To stray from the truth is to wander. It's to go astray from the truth. Instead of being fixed upon the truth of God's word, to walk in holiness and being characterized by Christ's likeness, a wandering believer is one who strays from the path of Christ, the way of Christ, strays from the truth of Christ, not only his, what he taught, but the actions that should reflect what he taught. James, in fact, used this verb to wander back in 116 to warn believers of being enticed by one's lust and falling into sin. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray, he says. Don't allow your temptations and your lust to, to lead you astray into sin. The truth here is all, is the whole, all the truth of the Christian faith, correct doctrine as well as correct behavior. And so when someone doesn't walk with the Lord, it is a result, ultimately, of a rejection of, of Christian truth. That's why in, I think in biblical counseling, one of the things that we uh, strive to do in biblical counseling is when someone says, I'm wrestling with sin, I, I keep falling into sin. Well, eventually, we, part of the process of counseling is to understand what doctrine of God are you failing to recognize in your life? What doctrine? You may know it in the head knowledge, but you don't accept it in your heart. And that's why you walk in sin. Almost every, in fact, every sin you can you could target in your life, is a failure to believe or to hold to some doctrine of God, some doctrine of Christ that you've been taught or that you understand. So straying from the truth is any strain then of, from biblical practice as well as biblical doctrine. When our brother and sister strays from the truth then, it is our responsibility to turn them back. This word to turn is a synonym to repent. It, sometimes it can be give the idea of convert, to turn someone back. You, know, you, you see, your, your, you, maybe, you see you know, many times we're running. As young children, we're kind of going one way, about to cross street. What our parents do, they hold us. You know, they'll, they'll turn us away from that. That's kind of the idea. You, you turn them away from danger. And that's what sin is. When we're walking in sin, it's dangerous. We need to turn them, to turn them away from that. The Bible gives us plenty of instructions for how we have to turn a fellow believer back to the Lord. And I'd like to share with you several, uh, well, several points. I'm not sure how many I have here. Let's see. Uh, first of all, when we, when we see a brother or sister in sin, we want to reprove them, or Jesus says rebuke them or correct them. How do we do so? First of all, number one, we want to correct them privately. Correct them privately. You see a brother or sister in sin, correct them privately. Don't, don't 
do it in public. You know, don't, don't come out and say, after service, you know, come up to me and say, Pastor Henry, uh, I've seen some sin in your life. I want to talk with you, uh, you know, out loud. That would, kind of, that would be not so private. Um, I want to talk with you privately about it, <laughs> even. <laughs> that would be wrong. We want to say, hey, can I talk with you, you know? Uh, you know, can we get together for coffee, tea, uh, you know, whatever it is. Uh, talk to the private. Matthew 18, 15, uh, Jesus taught us uh, there to, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. It's private. It's a little important private. Uh, secondly, and by the way, these are no particular order. Uh, correct them using God's word. Uh, we want to use God's word. We want to show that it's not just, uh, we want to be not accused of judging. You know, judging is setting up our own standard to condemn someone else. That's what judging is. But when we evaluate or when we show someone their sin from God's word, that's not judging. That's, you know, I mean, that is not judging in the sinful sense. That's showing God, letting God be judged, letting his word speak. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, for training in righteousness. Thirdly, we are to do, correct them gently. Correct them gently. This is important. Um, as, uh, and this is something even as, uh, as parents uh, we, we learn to do, to correct your children gently, uh, as well as uh, to not always yell, uh, yell at them, uh, as is the temptation, but to correct one another gently. Galatians 6.1 says, um, If anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Let's gently do so, because it's a real sensitive thing. And as you know, no one likes being told that they're living in sin, right? No one, no, really not. So you have to do it gently. Uh, gentleness is important so that they might receive the truth. You won't be accused of, well, of being too harsh because you don't want your demeanor to, be the, to prevent someone from coming to repentance. Fourthly, we are to do so in humility. Correct them in humility. Looking to our own lives first. We want to make sure that we ourselves, in fact, Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual. The implication there is that you who are a believer in Christ, you who are led by the Spirit as well, you want to make sure you're walking in obedience to the Lord. Matthew 7.5, Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take uh, the the speck that is in your brother's eyes. So let's examine our own hearts. As we come correcting. And then, in line with our the whole emphasis of our pastors this morning, we are to do so privately. Fifthly, correct them prayerfully. Prayerfully. Uh, Jesus gives an example of this in Luke 22, verse 32. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for Peter not to fail, even as he knew Satan was going to tempt him, sift him like wheat. He prayed for him that he would not fall into sin. But then he also prayed that when you turn once again, when he turns from the sin, that he would be an encouraged brother, that, that he would turn. So Jesus is a great example. You know, when we see a brother or sister in sin, then we are to turn them back. We are to lovingly, prayerfully, humil- humbly, gently, scripturally, privately turn them back to the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk in the truth. We are to do so with our words our actions as our example, because if we're not walking in holiness, you can be sure, that, you know, whenever you've been reproved uh, by sin, sometimes a strong temptation, at least for me, is to point out the sin in the other person, too. You, can anybody do that? No, it's just me. But you just want to turn it, so you be ready, you know, that might be, God might do that. 
as well as most powerfully, though, our prayers, though. Pray for the repentance and restoration of a sinning believer. Well, that's our responsibility. This is our son. That's what God's called us to do, and hopefully give us some lot of practical instructions. And it's, it's not easy to do. It depends on your personality to some extent. Most of us don't have that kind of personality where we like to confront people in their face uh, with their sin. Uh, most of us are just, um, you know, overwhelmed by the sin in our own lives and wanting to correct our lives first. But God wants us to lovingly turn a sinning believer away from the, from the danger that they're facing as they, if they allow their sin to go on. And so James then in verse 20 reminds us of the result of this. They're really the consequence of what happens when we do successfully turn a believer back from sin or from their waywardness. We find the result in verse 20. Two things happen in verse 20 that when we turn back a sinner from the error of their way. Number one, we save his soul from death. We save his soul from death. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, James had written that when sin, there he had spoken about temptation in the midst of trials, but he kind of just went on the, an explanation of the nature of temptation, the nature of sin. He says that, and it ultimately starts off with our lusts, our own desires, our, our evil desires. He says that when sin is accomplished, that when our evil desire is then given to temptation and we actually sin, and you, when sin then is accomplished, that is, if you allow sin to go its full route, it's full course. If you just let sin go on, so you can fall into sin, this, you don't do anything about it, just let it keep doing what it's going to do. And sin will lead to a repetition of sin. It will lead to more sin. It will lead to a, 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 a callousness towards sin. James says, sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. This death is both physical, as uh, we've seen in scriptures, that, it's, that we all die because of sin. And we think about Genesis 5, every, every uh, descendant of Adam died, lived, and died. But this death is also, and ultimately, a spiritual death. Death is a separation. Physical death is a separation of our, body, of our spirit from our body, our soul from our body. But spiritual death is a separation of our soul from God's presence. Separation to hell, a place apart from God, where God's wrath, well, where God's wrath is. Eternal death is a place of, is an, is a, is a eternal conscious punishment and in the experiencing the wrath of God in hell. Sin, our sins, your sin, my sin, if we allow it to continue and run its course, it's death. It's that. That is, that is it's physical death. And if you've, if you've lost a loved one, you know how terrible that is. But much worse than that is the spiritual death that is coming because of sin. Our sin if we allow it to run its course, will lead to death. 
Now, I know all of us are backtracking. We say, oh, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm in Christ. That's not possible for me anymore. I know I'm covered. I'm covered by the blood. I, I know that if I sin, it's not going to lead to that spiritual eternal death. And yes, you have right doctrine about that. But that is no excuse to allow your sin to go on and continue. Ultimately, a professing believer, even if they know that, yes, uh, sin, uh, sin leads to death, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and I receive forgiveness, but a believer, a professing believer who allows sin to continue in their life, unrepentant, is in danger of eternal death. No matter what you say, you believe. Because continuing an unrepentant sin is a strong sign that one never truly believed Christ. So take this warning for, for what it is. Feel the full weight of it, that our sin, if allowed to continue, leads to eternal death. Don't let it continue in life. Let's resolve it. It's not You're not going to lose your salvation. We got that right. It's true. You, just know that James is warning us that when you save a person from sin, you're saving them from the potential of that sin running its course, perhaps revealing who they really are, and that, that being etern- leading them to eternal death. 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in the darkness, that is sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. We deceive ourselves if we say we believe in Christ, but we walk in we continue living in sin, unrepentant, as if we don't care. And so when a brother or sister turns away from Christ, we ought to have, we who have responsibly turned them back, ought to turn them back. And when we turn them back, we correct them, they turn, then we are saving their soul from death. That's what, that's what happens when we fulfill our responsibility. We save them from the, from the consequences of sin. Secondly, though, not only do we save a soul from death, we cover a multitude of sins. We cover a multitude of sins in, verse, uh, in the latter half of verse 20. The verb cover is, is, it carries the idea of forgiveness. So that you could just say we forgive a multitude of sins. Now, having said that, we forgive a multitude of sins. We know that forgiveness is ultimately, ultimately God's, right? God is the one who forgives. Only God can forgive sin. But when we bring a person back from, the, from continuing sin, we save them, we cover them a multitude of sins. How is that? Well, when we give into sin, when a person gives sin and does not repent of it, it often leads to other sins, right? When someone turns away from Christ, when they stop following Christ, they go off their life, does it does mean they, live, do they generally live a, a, every, the rest of their life pleasing the Lord? No, right? Usually they start, when they turn away from Christ, it's because they want to live their life in a certain way. They want to choose a certain sin. They don't want Christ telling them how to live their life anymore. They want to pursue the worldly, the worldly possessions. They want to pursue fame and fortune. They want to pursue all that the world has to offer that is pleasing, fulfilling their lustful desires, like the prodigal son. But when we turn someone away from 
the way of, the way the way of error. They come back not only forgiven for their sin of turning away, but forgiven of if they if they're like the prodigal son, forgiven of all the sins that they committed while while away from God. They're brought back knowing that God's forgiveness covers all their sins. Think about, I think of the, um, Hosea, the prophet Hosea, and who was called to marry a wife, Gomer, who was basically going to fall away from him, an adulter- would be an adulteress. And she would go away and she would then uh, fall away from faithfulness to, to Hosea. But then in her unfaithfulness, she slept with all sorts of other people. She was basically a temple, seemed like the temple prostitute. But when Hosea brought her back, he not only forgave her for turning away from him, but he had to forgive her for all those sins, all those acts of sin that she committed in unfaithfulness. God does that. That's a picture of God. When we turn a sinner away from the way of error, we're not just turning them away from having fallen away from Christ. We're we're, we bring them back to experience the forgiveness of all their sins that they've committed. That's what we do. We cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we know that forgiveness is an act of God. But in our passage, and as well as 1 Peter 4, 8, we're, we realize, we should recognize that we have a, a forgiveness to give as well. That we also cover a multitude of sins. That we also, knowing that God has forgiven them, we ought to also forgive them. In the early church, we've already kind of talked about the, the, the story a few weeks ago about how the early church had difficulty forgiving, receiving back those that had fallen away during persecution. They had a bitterness against those who fell away and kept them outside the church, didn't, didn't welcome them back. We ought to welcome back sinners because we're sinners also, saved by grace. We should cover a multitude of sins out of love. We should forgive our fellow brothers. We should welcome back them to church. And as, because why? Because this reflects love. This reflects God's love. As brothers and sisters who love one another, we ought to seek one another's good at times forbearing sin, at times correcting sin, at all times forgiving sin. So we come then just to our conclusion this morning. All this discussion about sin, restoration, and prayer is not just James' idea, but ultimately it points to Christ. It points to the words of Christ. And as I think about this passage, there's a strong parallelism in all that James is saying here in verse 13 to 20 with what Jesus had said in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, verses 12 through 35, Jesus speaks on seeking the restoration of a sinning brother. And in those verses, if you have time to look at it uh, on your own, we saw in, in verse 12 to 14 how he encouraged to seek after the straying sheep, telling the parable of the, of the, the, the 99 and the, and, the stri- and the one lost sheep, how the shepherd leaves the 99 in their, sh- in their sheepfold to go after looking for that straying one. In the same way, we ought to seek after the straying one. Verse 15 to 20, Jesus then taught the disciples about correcting the straying sheep. He says, if a brother brother sins, go and reprove him in private. 
And then talking about the involvement, if, if necessary, of, the, of two or three other, one or two others as witnesses, or even the whole church as necessary, that whole church discipline. But it's about correcting the straying sheep. And even there, it's, there's the, the, the reference to praying for one another, where two or three are gathered together. This prayer for those who are falling, who are straying sheep. We ought to be men and women, brothers and sisters, who look out and to correct and pray for the straying sheep. And then Jesus taught in verse 21 and 35 of forgiving the straying sheep. Of how, how often should we forgive a fellow brother or sister when they stray? And then he tells that wonderful parable of the person who was forgiven of, of so much, like 10,000 talents. But then he went on and he, and he didn't forgive another fellow slave. And Jesus taught from that parable that we, if we've been forgiven much, we ought to forgive our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when they fall, when they sin against us, against the Lord. We shouldn't hold against them as people are brought back to Christ. God doesn't hold against us. We shouldn't hold against one another. So Jesus, these are Jesus' words. All that we've learned today is, reflects Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings. In fact, when we think about James, that's what James has been writing about. He's been almost, you could almost think of it as he's been expositing, explaining the words of Christ to us. He's been explaining it in light of Old Testament scriptures. And hopefully that we, as we've studied this book, we have seen that. We've seen Jesus' words to us. And as fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, as those who are brothers and sisters of Christ, let us be people who not, not just hear the word, but we do the word as well. That we'll do it. But we do it out of faith in Christ. Ultimately, all our obedience in the Lord, all that we, uh, all that we have, um, all our obedience to Christ reflects our faith in Jesus Christ, our faith that works. Uh, hopefully, you've been encouraged. You've, you've come to see that you have a faith that works. But if there's anyone here who does not have a faith in Christ, maybe you realize, my faith doesn't work, then it's never too late to this moment turn your life over to Christ to turn from sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, all our sins. He suffered an eternal death so that you who repent and believe in him can receive forgiveness, can experience a grace that is greater than all our sins. That's why Christ came. Let's make sure, first and foremost, we have that faith in Christ. If you don't have that faith in Christ, put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. That's the first and foremost thing. We learn other books because faith in Christ is a faith that works. A lot of people out there have faith that doesn't work, a faith that leads to just an empty life, a faith that is unproductive, a faith that is characterized by more sin. But Christians, true believing Christians, ought to have a faith that works, a faith that shows Jesus Christ to the world. Let's that be our faith. I hope this book has challenged you. And if it has, uh, you know, in any way, uh, just share it with others. Tell someone else about how the book of James has encouraged you. Pass it on. But that's what we do as disciples of Christ. We share Christ's teaching with others. All right? Let's pray together. One. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that you have a grace that is greater than all our sin. Thank you, Father, that in Christ we have forgiveness and that you have instruct, given these instructions to the church so that when any of us sin, when any of us stray, as we sometimes do, that you will use your church 
our brothers and sisters, our family, to turn us away from our error. Thank you, Father, for this loving provision. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful to it. Help us to be men, brothers and sisters who do consider it our responsibility to be our brother or sister's keeper. That we will not allow sin to run its course, but that we will strive to correct lovingly, gently, scripturally, privately, humbly, so that our fellow brothers and sisters would continue to walk in holiness. And that we would be, as a church, a shining example of the, of the character of Christ. Lord, we know we, we are not, we'll never be perfect in this life. Father, by your grace, help us to encourage one another, to be accountable to one another, to confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another, so that Christ might be made known among us. Thank you for this faith that you grant us in Christ. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for a faith that works. Lord, help us to look for ways to be diligent in dependence upon your spirit to work out this faith that you give us. Showing mercy, controlling our tongues, being patient in the midst of trials, pursuing peace with one another, and looking out for one another when we sin. All these things and more, Father, you've taught us this year through James. Continue to teach us through your word in other places. Help us to pass these truths on to others as well. In Jesus' name, amen.